Uh, good morning. It's um, a real pleasure and privilege to be with you here this morning. And for those of you uh, online, thanks for coming and thanks for zooming in. Uh, thanks, Hannah, for the reading and Mary for the wonderful uh, introduction. <coughs> After Matt Maslin's wonderful talk last week and the advertising that went out this week saying someone else was speaking, the wonderful Jim, um, I feel I need to apologise. I sort of feel a bit like a caboose and a bit like a charlatan. Um, so somewhere in there is me. <coughs> but um, it is a real joy to be with you and to be speaking here again. Um, in, in the way of half-hearted apologies, uh, some of you know that uh, with my Parkinson's, my body contorts in ways that are beyond my control. I'm okay. I hope you'll be okay with it. <laughs> um, have any of you ever received one of those looks? You know, someone looks at you and the look is like you're barking up the wrong tree. You're wrong. You're mistaken. The look sort of cuts right through you to your soul and you think, oh my goodness, uh, what, what's happened? Has anyone ever had a look like that? <clears throat> I see I'm not alone. <clears throat> Late last year, I experienced such a look. I um, went into a, a cafeteria where there were a small group of people talking about the Sermon on the Mount, as you do. <laughs> and and I, I listened for a few minutes, and then I said, you know, I think the standards in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible to live up to. I think Jesus must have stated them to make us dependent on him. <clears throat> But my friend who was in that group, who's a biblical scholar, gave me a look. And, and I interpreted it as saying, you're wrong, Phil. We can live up to those standards. Now, of course, I didn't want to um, ask him if I was correct and never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> but I um, was so challenged by this that over the summer, all two minutes of it, <clears throat> I decided to re-study the Sermon on the Mount. I read it every day for a few months. I read um, Dallas Willard, John Mark Comer, Jonathan Pennington, and R.T. France, who are all filtered through my talk. And um, it's really interesting that Dallas Willard says <coughs> that in the Sermon of, on the Mount, uh, there are two major questions being addressed, two major questions that humanity always faces. Where to get good coffee and where to get good coffee. <laughs> now, the first question is, which life is the good life? What is genuinely in my interest and how may I enter true well-being? That is a question many of us ask. And as I continue... Um, hopefully a response will become clear. And the second question is, who is truly a good person? Who has the kind of goodness found in God? Good questions, aren't they, that <clears throat> we don't consciously think of all the time. Uh, all these writers say that it's with great significance that Jesus starts the Sermon on, on the Mount with the Beatitudes. They all point to there. But before we go there, it's important to remember the context of Jesus' sermon. Uh, Israel 
was occupied by the Romans. They hated it. Um, commentaries say that they were taxed between 70 and 90% of their income, and they longed to get free. And second, we need to keep in mind uh, who Jesus is. You know, as Matt explained last week, and as Matthew 4, before the sermon explains, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, the great I am, the one who can deliver, uh, the exorcist, the one who can heal. He has the authority to speak. So verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> so when Jesus saw these crowds, and um, Matthew 4 tells us that the crowds listening to Jesus on the mount had witnessed him teaching in their synagogues. They'd heard him preach the good news, healing the sick, uh, delivering people from demons. News about him spread everywhere. And they brought the sick, the ill, the unwanted to the sermon on the mount. So these are the people Jesus was spe is speaking to, uh, a mixed crowd, a bit like us perhaps. And then he went up on the mountainside and a man by the name of Siong Yang points out that in Matthew's gospel, mountain is an important motif. It is on the mountain that Jesus reveals his identity in the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus commissions his 11 disciples on the mountain. Uh, Moses receives the Torah on a mountain. Um, and in Matthew's gospel, the new Moses, Jesus, uh, teaches the true meaning of the Torah uh, to the people who were gathered there. <clears throat> so words matter, and Matthew is a master wordsmith. And then Jesus sat down, and his disciples came to him to teach them. Uh, verse 3 reads, <clears throat> Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of heaven comes to them. <clears throat> Where did that come from? You know, I think the people would have been expecting Jesus to say, I'm going to run for president, or this is how we're going to overthrow the Romans. But he starts with this. Uh, Rachel is bedridden. <clears throat> She's crippled with anxiety and depression. She hasn't been out for months. She lives with a tyrannical parent who holds the purse strings incredibly tightly. Uh, she is exhausted, seemingly has no energy for anything. She has no expectation that good will come to her. <clears throat> she gave and gave and served and served, and in return, she's bedridden. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's neither saying it's great to be financially poor. It isn't. Uh, he's also not saying um, we should want or strive to be poor in our spirits. It's better to be strong in our spirits, isn't it? Jesus is not saying being poor is a spiritual virtue. Jesus is not asking us to pray to become poor in spirit. And Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they are poor in spirit. Rather, in some profound, uh, mysterious, yet truthful way, 
Jesus is saying to the Rachels of this world, <clears throat> you are poor in spirit, but you are blessed because of your connection with me. Because I have chosen you, because the kingdom of God has come on you, are you are blessed. Come on in. Jesus says, come on in. <clears throat> Our confidence that this is correct is based on the word uh, blessed, um, which in Greek is makorius. And that describes a state. It's not a conditional phase or a word. So it translates to blessed kind of, but equally it could be something like happy, blissful, fortunate, flourishing, congrats. R.T. France, this great biblical scholar, likens it to the Australian, good on you. There are these states. It's not conditional. We are blessed in Christ. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Peter and Sarah awoke after a medically induced coma from a car crash. They learned that their only daughter, their only child, did not survive the crash. Uh, amidst their anguish, torment, depression, grief, pain, rage, their mourning, <clears throat> Jesus is not saying that bad things in your life are good. Jesus is not saying uh, we need to find ways to incur perpetual losses to keep the comfort of Christ with us. Uh, Jesus is saying here uh, that you are blessed in your mourning. <clears throat> and Jesus knows the pain. He does care. Remember Lazarus. But Jesus is saying, you're blessed. Now, pastorally, I would never teach or counsel that piece of wisdom. <clears throat> I would never say to anyone, in their deep mourning that you were blessed. Yet Jesus did this. Um, I know that many people here today and zooming in are mourning. Jesus is saying that amidst the death of your loved ones, amidst the betrayals, broken promises, unfulfilled hopes, as you mourn unforeseen losses, shattered dreams, the twilight years of your lives, the mundanity of life, ill health. Jesus says you're blessed. Now, it's hard to comprehend, isn't it? So much pain, but Jesus is saying we're blessed. Verse 5, <clears throat> blessed are the meek, the shy ones, the intimidated, the mild, the unassertive. They step off the sidewalk to let others pass as if it were only right, as if something goes wrong around them, they automatically feel it must have been something to do with them. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is not saying here that meekness is power under control, as people describe it. He's not saying the Beatitudes are timeless truths and that the meek always inherit the earth because they don't, do they, when you think about it. And neither are the Beatitudes flat-footed conditional statements that say if you do this, then you'll get that. A friend of mine once said this profound sentence to me. He said, 
the most important thing you need to know about another person is that you don't know the most important thing there is about another person. Uh, we do not know why some people present as meek, but Jesus knows and Jesus understands. Uh, Jesus is saying, you might not feel bold, you might not feel confident, you feel you lack dot, 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 fill in the gap yourself. Um, there's this barrier and I, Jesus, get it. But despite all the factors that have contributed to your state, you are blessed in your meekness. I think it's important that some of us observing others in different and difficult situations, keep in mind that discernment is given for intercession, not judgment. You know, if we look and observe and discern, we should pray as a default position, not judge. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, biblically speaking, righteousness means being in right relationship with God, others, and the world. So Jesus is more likely saying with this verse uh, that the blessed are those who don't have right relationship with God, others in the world. They are not blessed for their deficits, but in their deficits, they are blessed uh, because Jesus calls them blessed and because of connection with him. Are you getting the feel for what's happening here? <clears throat> uh, verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Brennan Manning, who some of you might know, uh, he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. So he comes from the world of AA and um, deep struggle. And he has this beautiful thing to say about this verse. Uh, what infallible guarantee do we have that ragamuffins will be treated at the judgment with infinite kindness and immeasurable mercy? And Jesus says, because you have passed it around, you know, if you pass mercy around, you will be blessed. As long as you receive the welcome of Christ. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, admittedly, this verse sounds like a virtue, and uh, it spun my wheels for a very long time because I would love to see God. A Sunday school class was asked, what's the definition of a lie? A young girl put a hand up and said, a lie is an abomination before God and a very real help in times of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Why did the teenagers cross the road? Because their parents told them not to. <clears throat> Jesus said, when you have people over for a meal, don't invite your family, your rich friends, and those who can pay you back. Invite those who can't pay you back. Some of us, upon hearing a scripture like that, put that to our all-time favorite verse, and we now have biblical justification not to invite family over. <laughs> um, others say... Um, I work out really hard. I 
push my luck, I dodge deadlines, and I jump to conclusions. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. When I get buried, I want my teammates to let me into the grave. You know why? So they can let me down one more time. <laughs> so, so there's all these sort of stories. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I realized a long time ago that my heart was not pure. I lied to my parents. I disobeyed and rebelled. I blamed others for all my wrongdoings. Um, I cheated and I would not accept culpability. I would blame others. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. No one has a pure heart. But if we are striving towards that, we are blessed in him. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. <clears throat> to be a peacemaker in occupied Israel was to walk along a wire uh, between very high buildings because it was akin to being a trader or a tax collector. To be a peacemaker, you need to know both sides of the story, and that makes you dangerous, and many people don't like that. And peacemakers are sometimes muzzled. But Jesus says, if you're in an awkward situation, you are blessed because of your connection with me. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The pursuit of righteousness can arise, give life to opposition because it exposes other people and they don't necessarily like what you're doing or saying. But again, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Um, terrible things happen. If you look at the lives of the apostles, um, there's biblical proof. But Jesus says that even they are blessed as they're being persecuted. So it's quite strange, isn't it? Um, this is what I think the Beatitudes is saying. This is what I think my friend who gave me that look is saying. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, you're blessed in Christ. In Jesus, we're blessed, and not in spite of our pain, but in our pain. <clears throat> People came to Jesus poor, and they went away poor, but they also went away blessed. The heart of God is open to everyone. Uh, some of us don't like that. Um, Jonah didn't like it. He didn't uh, want to reach out to the Ninevites. But we cannot shrink God down to our minimalistic views. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis uh, has this comment about Jesus' claim and um, admonition to be perfect. The command, be you perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Jesus is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. And from within the kingdom, from within Christ, in connection with our crucified and resurrected Lord, uh, we can live out the rest of the sermon. 
but it starts from a position of being blessed where we are. In Christ, we can live out the sermon, um, but apart from Christ, we cannot. So in response to Willard's first question, which life is the good life, uh, it's revealed in the Beatitudes and the verses that immediately follow, Matthew 5, 1 to 20, is Jesus' response to what's the good life. And in response to the second question is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As I understand things, there are three ways to assess if a life is blessed, uh, if a life is flourishing. Two are on shaky ground. The first is, I feel great. Um, Everything has come together. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future. Uh, I have loving relationships, I'm feeling great. But we all know that that is wonderful, but it can be shaky ground. The second way to assess goodness and blessing is that all your ducks line up. I've got 2.3 children, I've got uh, a mortgage-free house, holiday batches, money in a Swiss vault, um, a fantastic job, and I'm deeply fulfilled. Wonderful, may it be your experience. But that is not a theological definition of flourishing, of blessedness. As I understand it, the theological definition of flourishing, of being blessed, is to be in submission under Christ. Then if you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., etc., whatever happens We're blessed because we're in submission under Christ. I had a friend who um, lived in the drug world for a very long time. He became a Christian, and about six to 12 months into the Christian life, he said to me, Phil, this Christian life is so dull and so boring compared to my life on drugs. And um, I had to, on one level, empathize, and we don't choose to submit under Christ to have fun. I think we do it because it's right. However, um, I was able to encourage him that if you come to a place of submission under Christ, that's when a life in Christ can exceed the joy and rush of your drug life. And um, that is a path that he's chosen to go down. In response to the second question, who is truly good? Uh, The rest of the Sermon of the Mount responds to that. Now, of course, if some of you here are humming on all cylinders, everything's fine, everything's perfect, go you. Praise God. Enjoy. But if you're struggling, uh, hear the word of the Lord. You are blessed in this state. Now, Back to um, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus does get our mourning. Uh, There's all kinds of biblical proof and life proof that he gets it. Um, As I said, I would not tell someone they're blessed (laughs) in their deep loss, but they are, according to Jesus, the master physician. So in closing, 
I think I've counted 23 looks as I've been speaking. So I see I'm in big trouble. <clears throat> if you were to create your own beatitude, what would you write? Who would you put in it? It has to be someone that you or society marginalizes, rejects, or ignores. Blessed are, what would you say? Uh, that might be a helpful exercise. And in closure, um, could you just meditate on this final slide for 60 seconds?